0: The Atlanta Journal-Constitution. This is Politically Georgia. I'm Patricia Murphy. Today, the controversy over Atlanta's police and fire training center continued Monday when protesters clashed briefly with police at the DeKalb County site. AJC City Hall reporter Riley Bunch joins us to talk about the protests and the politics of training police in Atlanta.
1: I'm Bill Nigut. Then we'll talk with Athens Mayor Kelly Gertz. He'll tell us about his efforts to address public safety by mobilizing Georgia mayors around their concerns over guns.
2: I'm Greg Bluestein live in Washington. Newly acquired video is revealing key details about the Fulton County plea agreements that were just reached in the case against Donald Trump.
0: Um, He said the boss uh, is not going to leave under any circumstances. We are just going to stay in power. That's former Trump attorney Jenna Ellis. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. All right. Well, Greg, I know that you are in D.C. for a special family event, but I want to make a quick announcement about a family event for us in the Murphy household. It's my dad's birthday today. (laughs) Happy
1: birthday. Happy birthday, Dad. Happy
0: birthday, Mike Murphy. (laughs) Greg, tell us about what you're in D.C. for. It's a little bit business, a little bit pleasure.
2: Yeah. Well, I don't know if you call it pleasure, but it's another sort of birthday. (laughs) It is the birth of my nephew and it was his bris. So for him, it certainly wasn't pleasure. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Greg, you're also there to cover a news story.
2: I am. I decided, guys, to stay an extra day um, because there's tens of thousands of people who are flocking to Washington uh, on Tuesday afternoon for what could be the biggest pro-Israel rally in U.S. history. And there's an entirely there's a giant contingent from Atlanta coming up, including State Representative Esther Panage, the only Jewish member of the Georgia legislature, and a, a number of people from the community who are coming up buses and planes and cars and you name it. I don't know about boats. Um, And they're coming here uh, to Washington to take part in this rally. So I'm going to go check it out and cover it for the AJC.
0: Great. Well, we're going to check out your coverage on AJC.com. And I'm sure we're going to have you back on the podcast or the radio show. I mean, at some time, you're hosting on Thursday. So we're going to hear all about it on some future episode of the Politically Georgia podcast. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Greg, tell us about your trip to D.C. I know that you're up there for a family event, but also you're up there for an important work event you're going to be covering later.
2: Yeah, it's a double header for me. There was my brother and his wife had their second son. Um, actually she went into labor doing my daughter's bat mitzvah. So it was very, uh, luckily she wasn't. (laughs) Your mother's head was
0: exploding.
2: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no, luckily they weren't in Atlanta, but, uh, the bris was yesterday had the honor of holding the little baby doing the, doing the actual ceremony, which was nerve wracking and pretty neat as well. Um, And I decided to stay up here for uh, a rally that I'll be covering this evening involving this afternoon, involving tens of thousands, including a huge contingent from Atlanta that are rallying to support Israel right now.
0: Okay, great. Well, we're going to look for that coverage later on the AJC. But right now, we're going to bring in the AJ City Hall reporter, Riley Bunch, because yesterday here in Atlanta, several hundred protesters gathered near the site of the Atlanta Police and Fire Training Center in DeKalb County for what was billed as a mass national mobilization months in the planning. Protesters and police clashed briefly. And uh, Riley, let us know about that march. You were there. You were photographing it and documenting it. Uh, really from the very beginning. What did you see?
4: Absolutely, Patricia. And first of all, hi, guys. Thank you for having me on your (laughs) radio. (laughs) Super excited to be here. Um, But yeah, yesterday was quite the event in Atlanta. And this was something we have known was coming for quite some time. These plans for what um, organizers build as a mass mobilization to Atlanta over Atlanta's training center um, has been in the works for quite some time. So there were events over the course of the weekend, some protest training, but Monday was the big protest, big event that we really didn't know what was going to happen until maybe morning of, um, because these plans were kept very close to organizers' chests and they kind of deliberated over the entire weekend. But there was a group of around a few hundred people, and it got increasingly bigger, obviously, as time went on, and that gathered at Gresham Park. And these were opponents of Atlanta's $90 million training center. And they were planning to march to the construction site along Key Road in unincorporated Degab County and halt construction through, quote, nonviolent means. So this was their kind of objective the entire weekend. They had a list of pledges that they had... um, Protester sign that said they wouldn't bring weapons, said they wouldn't bring drugs or alcohol, things like that. Um, So they began at Gresham Park uh, around shortly after 8 a.m. on Monday, and they marched along the South River Trail to um, the Boulder Crest community, and then along Constitution Road. And at this point, they really took over Constitution Road. There were uh, upwards of 300, probably more people there that blocked the entire road, and they were met by DeKalb police blockading the road. It was clear that police were not going to let them get close to the construction site at all. Um, and there was a confrontation almost immediately after all the protesters got there. They just continued to try to walk down Constitution and were met with police. Um, so there was kind of an, an outbreak, police threw tear gas canisters, flashbangs that dispersed the protesters um, who kind of fled into the woods and then retreated. And that was really the kind of the culmination of everything. Nothing happened after that. Um, but it was a tense moment there for uh, a 10 minutes or so on constitution.
1: Riley, um, in, in in reading the reporting, uh, it, it appears that this was a relatively brief confrontation, tear gas, some flashbang devices thrown at demonstrators, but they dispersed relatively quickly, right? And retreated. And in their training sessions, they'd been told, not to become violent, not to become overly confrontational. And so I guess I can't help but wonder what they feel they accomplished, given that they turned around rather quickly and retreated. Um, What's the point of, do you think in the long run, they made yesterday and what did they accomplish?
4: You know, I think that this was a group of... um... Organizers that were more nationally based it wasn't the similar similar local organizers that we have been seeing doing the referendum and some efforts like that and I think you know success for them was any attention brought to this site you know we have images of protesters clashing with police with police throwing Mm -hmm. tear gas canisters and um, that that's kind of a success for them right you know they are keeping the national eye on this um, and keeping it in the headlines.
2: Riley, let's take a st- step back for a second and remind us where we are on this entire debate because it's a 90 million dollar complex, if not more. Um, and construction has already begun, but there's this referendum movement. Uh, it's just kind of clarify for us where things stand with the protest and the construction of this this complex.
4: Yeah, and it's really complicated to follow because there's lots of different channels that this battle is being fought, right? We have the um, protesting in terms of big mobilizations, we have people going to city council, and we have the court. Um, battle as well so right now the referendum is held up in court the city appealed a decision by a federal court judge that allowed non-city of atlanta voters to collect um, signatures as part of the referendum process so we don't really know how many of those signatures are going to count based on this kind of legal pending issue we're going to hear oral arguments on that in december but really the um, kind of fate of the facility is caught up in this legal battle all while it's still being built so there there's almost half of it is constructed, 40 percent. Right. And it's supposed to be buildings going up in January. So it's still moving along.
0: And Riley, um, politics has never been far from this conversation because this moved through the city council. It has become a, a an important priority, but also a really heavy lift for Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens. It has felt sometimes like he's on a bit of an island when it comes to um, statewide Democrats supporting him or other democratic voices really getting out and saying, yes, we want this center. But we saw a poll this morning from uh, Governor Brian Kemp's political committee, and uh, they saw in that poll pretty broad support, majority support for building the training center, both statewide among Georgia voters, but also in the fifth congressional district where it is and in DeKalb County, where it is. <clears throat> so, do you feel like these protests are moving the needle at all, or when there are signs that say "defund the police"? You know, at the beginning of the march, is it making the compli- the, the politics more complicated in some ways?
4: You know, it's so hard to say because. The majority of people um, throughout my time covering this who are supportive of the center, those are not the loudest voices in the room, right? It is always the people that are opponents of the training center. Um, And that is one thing that we're really interested to see in um, as the AJC and some media partners go through the referendum petitions is where are the people signing it, right? So those numbers that came out in the poll showing broad support in DeKalb, showing broad support across the state, those are great for Republicans. And great for um, Andre Dickens, who says there's tons of support. And, you know, there was a really interesting moment at the protest yesterday. Um, the protesters had to move through the Boulder Crest neighborhood because police had blocked off a bridge along the South River Trail that they were going to go through. And um, It was really interesting to watch all the residents in that neighborhood come out and look at looking at these hundreds of protesters moving through their neighborhood right and there were several residents that weren't happy with this they were really upset that this was going through their neighborhood and i think that um you know it's interesting to see how the neighborhoods surrounding the facility are impacted and how they're feeling about not only the training center but the response that's happening right so those numbers are really interesting to see
1: well riley to pick up on that in your inside city hall weekly roundup of events that happened in atlanta city hall you have an item about the fact that the atlanta police department has now posted a video uh that shows the work that's already being done on the facility um things like you point out the emergency vehicle operations course and you say that the narrator of this video which is being made available for anybody but residents in the area particularly to look at Um, say that the they say in the the narration that it will be completed by December 2024. So they're trying to establish it as a fact on the ground. But you also point out that in the meantime, there's this court battle over the petitions and what impact they could have on whether the whole thing is completed.
4: Yeah. And that's a huge question right now. It's if this continues to be built, this is a $90 million facility. It's huge. If it keeps getting built, and then all of a sudden, maybe the referendum is successful, or the courts rule in favor of the referendum, you know, what happens to this giant facility that's sitting out there? And that question has not been answered at all. Um, And I also want to know, you know, as they build buildings, how are they going to secure the site? Tall buildings are a lot harder to secure than just a chain link fence around cleared ground, right? So how are they going to manage these protests, which I, you know, would think are going to continue to happen?
2: And Riley, adding to that, I mean, Mayor Dickens stakes so much of his political capital on this plan, and you know, it, it it came up during his election bid, but it wasn't maybe even the top five of issues. But now certainly it is it is right there in the top one or two. Um, he's put so much behind this. As Patricia mentioned, there's been a lot of Republican support, not as vocal Democratic support, other than the council members who have voted for it repeatedly. Um, there hasn't been, uh, you know, a, a loud level of support from prominent democratic officials so he does feel like an island sometimes how do you think this plays into whatever his future plans is starting with his re-election bid
4: you know it's he's in a really interesting position, because we had a story that ran on Monday about a horrible equipment shortage in the Atlanta's fire department, right? So not only is he dealing with all this pushback to the training facility, people that are wanting more money redirected from police to other services, he also has these huge public safety issues like this fire equipment shortage, like retention of police officers, retention of firefighters. Um, So, you know, all he can do is really double down on this. And I don't think we're going to see him waver anytime soon.
0: All right. Well, Riley, thank you so much for joining us. We're going to continue to have you on when uh, we need an update on this or anything else going on in the city. You are doing a terrific job covering it. And we're so grateful for you for bringing your reporting here this morning. Well, when we come back, we'll be joined live by Athens, Clark County Mayor Kelly Gertz and Savannah Mayor Van Johnson. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Every morning, delivered to your email, you can get Georgia's must-read newsletter from the AJC politics team. The new Politically Georgia morning newsletter is your daily jolt of news, insights, and analysis from me, Greg, Tia, and Adam Van Bremmer, and the rest of our politics team, all housed under a new brand, which you know from our podcast of the same name. There's no better time to subscribe at AJC.com slash newsletters. Thank you for being here with us as we look forward to 2024. Well, guys, I think all three of us at one time or another have said that the toughest job anywhere is being the mayor of a city here in Georgia. And of course, we here at Politically Georgia want to make sure we're hearing from all of the voices around the state. And so that's why today we are so thrilled to be joined by Athens-Clarke County Mayor Kelly Gertz and Savannah Mayor Van Johnson, who is newly reelected. Congratulations to you, Mayor Johnson, and welcome, Mayor Gertz.
5: Thank you so much.
0: Well, we want to get a quick update from you both on the state of affairs, kind of the state of the city in Athens and Savannah. Um, Both of these cities are dealing with growth. Both of these cities, I know, um, like all cities around the state, are dealing in some form or another with public safety. And um, we'd love to hear from you all about uh, what's top of your plate right now. Going to go to Mayor Johnson. First of all, congratulations on your reelection.
5: Well, thank you all so much. Um, Obviously, I'm still in post-election haze. Um, Obviously, we're very uh, pleased at at the outcome uh, of of this election. After what has been a historic four years um, in Savannah, Um, you know, our city is um, really on fire in so many ways, and I don't mean in a negative way. Our economy is on fire. Obviously, our ports are are doing well. The city is growing. We have the Hyundai. Plant coming here. So there's a lot of interest in this part of the state. Um, and so for us, it's about being able to manage that. It's about being able to address uh, those types of things. And so I heard part of your earlier segment. I will tell you, it is difficult um, being a mayor. Uh, and I know Mayor Gerson and I, we get blamed for everything. Um, we're charged with issues of public safety, but then also told about how to do public safety. So um, there's really no way you can win. Um, you have to just be able to determine your North Star and really um, move toward that and just be able to go to sleep at night knowing you did your best,
0: Mayor Kurtz. I know the Athens, Clark County, and you're the mayor of the consolidated government. we have to say, Athens Clark County is dealing with both of those issues. You're trying to plan ahead for the growth you know is coming to that beautiful city. And of course, public safety is always on the minds of mayors
6: right. And, and a lot of that growth has already happened. And unfortunately, as we know, in any magnetic community, the housing stock is not kept up with the growth in residential population or job growth. Uh, just as Mayor Johnson has a, a large industrial site that's uh, under development now, and if you haven't been on I-16, uh, just get ready to drive by and feel as if you're on another planet. Um, we've got lots of particularly biotech activity happening here. Uh, we have a large biotech supplier that's going to be opening next year, and Uh, creating about 1,700 jobs. And we've seen growth into Johnson & Johnson subsidiaries and a German vaccine manufacturer. Um, But of course, these people need places to live. And everybody who's here already needs to continue to be able to afford their housing. And so uh, really the cluster of the housing crisis, homelessness, and continued mental health needs are top of mind here. And of course, that tends to bleed into public safety as well.
2: Mayor Johnson, let's go back to something you just mentioned, and that we talked about in the first segment, which is public safety, and how you balance, you know, uh, uh, combating violent crime with also, uh, I, I would say, I, I would venture to say, a more progressive outlook on criminal justice, um, yeah. especially with uh, with uh, some of the pressures from the state over, um, you know, new crackdowns on particularly on violent crime. How do you balance those needs while combating violent crime in Savannah?
5: about calling a thing what a thing is. I mean, you can't track down a violent crime. You're not going to do anything about the guns. Um, I mean, I think that is what the issue is. Unfortunately, um, we'll talk about gangs. We'll talk about the results of the violent crime, but we don't talk about the things that make the crimes violent in the first place. Uh, Georgia, uh, unfortunately still has a very, um, I think a very, uh, uh, Immature view, when it relates to um, guns uh, and availability of guns, uh, it has been known across the country that Georgia has one of the lack, most lax gun laws in the country. Um, we're not against the Second Amendment. We're just trying to protect second graders. Um, and I think we can do that. Um, we just need to make sure it's common sense. And so what happens is, and in Savannah, I don't know about in Athens, um, we have a large number of guns that are available and they're all over the place. It makes it very hard for law enforcement. We have a large number of guns that are stolen from cars that are unlocked. That creates an issue for us. Uh, and I just think we have to really tighten down on that. Instead of coming to mop up the blood after it happens, we need to make sure the blood is not spilled in the first place.
1: Um Mayor Gertz and Mayor Johnson. It's Bill and I want to pick up on that. But as I do, A I, legend. I, I, want to point out, I want to point out that last year, Mayor Gertz and just re- more recently, uh, Mayor Johnson, you both won re-election by astonishing margins. I think in each case, you won, if not every precinct, virtually every precinct. So uh, uh, Mayor Johnson, particularly being the most recent, Victor, uh, <laughs> obviously, you're feeling pretty empowered about the future. But let me turn to Mayor Gertz. Gertz, given that uh, uh, Mayor Johnson talked about uh, guns. Mayor Gertz, you have led an effort to uh, bring together mayors to write a letter to the state, to legislators, I assume to Governor Kemp as well, talking about what you believe is a crucial need for new gun safety laws. Talk about that letter, what you're calling for, and really what hopes you have of getting anywhere with a very conservative legislature?
6: This is gonna be a long-term project. And I'm really proud to be joined by Mayor Johnson in Savannah. And in fact, 50 mayors around the state that have said, we simply need to join those states that are doing a better job keeping people safe. We often talk about the international comparison, how much safer it is in Canada or the UK or Japan or Germany. But the reality is there are dozens of states where it is so much safer than it is here in Georgia. So we have something like 18 deaths per year per 100,000 of the population. You can go to a state like Minnesota, a state that bears a lot of resemblance. It's a multicultural state. It's a multiracial state. It's a state with a large immigrant population. It's a state that has some rural and urban swaths, and they have less than half the per capita gun deaths of Georgia. And so what we're asking for is to double down on some of the behavioral health work that's begun over the last couple of years, a level playing field for background checks, mechanisms to make sure that people who don't need to have any kind of weapons don't have those weapons when they're at risk, um, making sure we're really focusing on those high capacity and rapid fire kinds of weapons and safe storage. Mayor John Johnson mentioned people getting car guns stolen from cars. That happens here every week. In fact, you know, as host of the University of Georgia, it's not uncommon for people who come from small towns or very rural communities, bring their guns with them in their trucks, and those kids get their guns stolen the first week they're in Athens. So, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for the post-crime intervention we can do, but really we need to be preventing crimes in the first place, and having a saner environment around guns is a big piece of that.
0: And Mayor Gertz, the big piece of that letter, as you mentioned, was also about mental health. And I know that mayors really struggle because you're right on the ground when people are in crisis and calling their local police department to come get the person um, out in front of their house or come get somebody, a family member um, who may have a gun in a domestic violence situation. Talk a little bit about what Y'all are running into what you need on mental health from the legislature, which we'll be considering expanding mental health in the next session.
6: Well, the first thing I would point to is prevention. So young people need to be provided with the foundational supports around healthcare generally and around mental health, around food and safe housing that are going to keep people in a more stable environment. But we know this has been a tough time in American history. The fentanyl crisis is something we hear about and see every day. We have an enormous number of fentanyl overdose deaths here. You know, we want to prevent those kind of crises in our population. And that's going to take staffing. That's going to take cash. That's going to take more support facilities than we have as a state. I mean, We really have never fulfilled the promise that was made in the 1990s when Central State Hospital in Milledgeville began to be decommissioned. Every community in this state, not just the Savannas, the Augustas and the Athenses, but also the Hayhiras and the Ludowissies and the Vidalias all need supports that are right there and closely available to them.
0: Mayor Johnson, are you finding that Savannah needs more mental health support? Is that a piece of the of the public safety issue that you're dealing with?
5: Absolutely. Uh, the reality is that you know cities don't provide mental health services. Um, and uh we have a, a hospital here, uh Georgia Regional hospital is here in Savannah. Um we have expanded a behavioral health unit that has been uh, wildly successful because we've been able to send uh, mental health professionals out on police car calls, and the interventions have really uh helped prevent arrest. Um, you know, people need help and and mental health is real. Uh, and I just think that every mental health call doesn't require a police response. Um, and so cities are having to step up to do it because unfortunately, the state is not doing it at the level that really gets people to the, to the help that they need. So they don't require uh, police intervention. And that's been uh, what's been quite challenging to us.
2: And mayors, we know we'll see the next phase of that multi-year mental health overhaul. Uh, They got stalled in the legislature earlier this year, next year. Um, but Mayor Mayor Gertz, I want to start with you on this one. I want to talk about city-state relations um, because both you and Mayor Johnson have tangled with Republican leaders in the state house. But I think Mayor Johnson a little bit more than you, Mayor Gertz. But in terms of having uh, the governor literally in your backyard, how has that sort of increased the tension sometimes uh, in your own city, which is very progressive leaning?
6: You know, th- there there's no doubt that there is a dissimilarity around our political leanings around. Our philosophies around how you craft policy, um, but I think Mayor Johnson would tell you, and I will say that I make every opportunity to engage. Um, you know, I, I'm not blowing up the governor's phone, but when the governor does something that's positive, I let him know that, that I'm appreciative of that. Uh, talk with his legislative policy staff all the time. The same in the lieutenant governor's office. I mean, if if anything, lieutenant Lieutenant Governor Jones is even more conservative uh, than Kemp, but. He and I have a good working relationship, and I make sure that I have conversations around real policy issues. And it's often possible face-to-face to to depoliticize some of these things and just to talk about outcomes. You know, second graders, fifth graders, they don't have politics, but they want to live in a safe Georgia. Mayor Johnson, I,
5: you've had. Yeah, let me just add. I mean, you know, we, we're not we don't have political. we don't have permanent friends or enemies. We have political uh, permanent interests. And for us, interests are our cities. And so um, I think I agree when when they when they get it right in our mind and get it right for our community, um, I'll be the first one to dance in the end zone with them. But um, when it's not, I'm going to have to call them. on I'm required to do that. Mayor, Mayor J- Gertz is required to do that.
1: I apologize. Right. I apologize for uh, interrupting you, Mayor Johnson. But but let me All ask right. you a question. I mean, you certainly had your clashes with Governor Kemp back, back during uh, the heart of COVID. But now, when you talk about being able to work amicably across the aisle with the governor and others, um, you're really going to be needing to do that as as the port of Savannah expansion. Uh, it begins to uh, bubble up as an issue. You're going to need billions of dollars for this. And it's going to be imperative to be able to work across the aisle to make that happen.
5: Well, that's why you don't make permanent enemies. Um, But, you know, the reality is that, you know, you have to be very clear when it's time to throw a flag. Um, And and for me, even as that community grows, as as our port uh, continues to grow, um, there are still some issues there for us. Um, We have to make sure that our community remains livable, uh, that we don't need to become the bypass for uh, all of the um, commerce that leaves and comes to the port. Uh, For us, it's also making sure that even if we talk about deepening uh, our harbors again, um, that our ecosystem and our environment is protected. Um, so, you know, there'll, there'll be those those conversations, those courageous conversations. Um, we're required to have them. At the end of the day, we all want um, the same thing. Um, certainly, they want Georgia to become the best state in which to work. Matt Gerson and I want Georgia to be the best state in which to live. And we can achieve both.
0: All right. Well, speaking of the port, that's going to require a good bit of federal money, certainly, because we are talking about billions and billions of dollars. And Greg talked about uh, city-state relations. Let's talk about city-federal relations, because both of y'all, of course, are in more progressive-leaning cities, although you're, of course, both nonpartisan elected officials. Um, But you have very conservative (laughs) members of Congress. Um, Mayor Johnson, you have uh, Buddy Carter, who, although has been a long-time rep, Representative for Savannah and Mayor Gertz, I believe Andrew Clyde is your member of Congress. Talk about those relationships um, and tell me if I've got that right, also. I want to make sure I, I'm not Andrew getting Clyde any is just to wrong. our
6: north, so Jackson okay. County, kind of northward. Uh, we have Mike Collins, and, okay. and Collins, of course, is also a conservative. conservative individual, too. Um, but mostly what I do when I approach Representative Collins is talk about areas of functionality, you know, things that we can do that are going to make people's lives better. So, for example, we are in the midst of some negotiation with the federal government around a property swap that's just going to make the federal government better able to do their work and us better able to do our work as well. Um, So we look for those opportunities. And, of course, we have two Democratic members in the Senate right now. Uh, Mayor Johnson and I both have great relationships with Senator Ossoff and Senator Warnock. Um, We reach out to those offices all the time. We, of course, have a Democratic administration in the White House, and certainly I hope that that continues for another four years after next year. Uh, And so we've got good relationships there, and and we often have to kind of broker multiple layers. So the the port is a great example. Um, The need right now for more housing, I'm looking for expanded low-income housing tax credits, and so that's going to need some federal and some state and some local support.
0: And Mayor Johnson, how do you think funding for the port is going to go at the federal level? Do you think you're going to get what you need?
5: Well, I think Savannah is poised. We're already uh, number two on the East Coast, number three in the nation. Um, we think that um, number two is clearly within view. Um, you know, if you notice around the world now, they're changing their ports of debarkation so that they can come directly to Savannah. Um, that's really important to us. But again, I think for us, the issues of livability remain um, important. The, the, our environment remains important. Uh, our ability to withstand climate change is important. And so uh, for us, it's a, com- a continued conversation. Uh, and I think it has to be mutual goal setting. It cannot be um, the feds just setting it or the state just setting it. Uh, and as uh, Mayor Gertz said, we have an excellent relationship with two phenomenal senators, uh, one of which is from Savannah, Uh, And and so for us, that's important. Yeah, it's important to have people who know you and who will listen to you. Uh, And that often
1: helps as a opportunity to talk uh, with our state. Um, Mayor Gertz, I know we're starting to get a little bit short of time, but I kind of like to go back to the gun issue with you for one very specific reason. You're you've been an educator. You have worked in schools as a teacher and as an administrator. And I'm curious what you make of the lieutenant governor's proposal uh, to offer teachers a $10,000 incentive to, to carry guns, which the state of, of Georgia already allows them to do in their classrooms. I, I'm assuming you're against it, but I'd like you to it, expound a little bit on why you think that's such a bad idea, if, if, as I said, apparently you do.
6: It, it, it seems like one of those absurd efforts just intended to get press. I mean, I, I heard that and, and I thought I had stepped into an episode of South Park. It just is out of this world. Um, teaching is a very difficult job. In fact, prior to being mayor, I taught seventh graders for three years and I thought that was gonna be the most difficult job I ever had until this <laughs> one. Um, and if I think about all the complexities of wrangling 25, 13 year olds at a time and having to be a security guard at the same time, you, know, you you've taken that beyond any human capacity. And so, I, I mean, I, I think that this is one of Lieutenant Governor Jones' many attempts at an early entree into the 2026 governor's race. Uh, I, I don't take it seriously in the least.
0: All right. Well, speaking of the 2026 governor's race, Mayor, you are term limited after this most recent victory. Do you have any uh, any other political plans you want to let us know about today on the show?
6: Well, Patricia, I appreciate you asking. Uh, I'll say never say never. But uh, I think if I want to continue to be invited back into my home, my next job will not be an elected one.
0: (laughs) And Mayor Johnson, same question to you, because we do hear your name um, coming to us as a potential candidate for another office in the future. You've just won reelection. Is anything on your mind that you'd like to let us know about?
5: Well, I hired Greg Bluestein as, as my um, as my my agent and, and hype man, but the reality is I, I have the greatest job in the world right now. I'm the mayor uh, of one of the greatest cities on earth, um, and and for me, you know, this is just where I am. I mean, I, I signed up to do four years here, um, and that's what I want to be able to do. Um, you cross that bridge when you get to it. I think mayors are are really so important. Uh, But at the end of the day, I like doing something and seeing the benefit of our work, uh, you know, and not being caught up in other stuff in cities. You know, we talk Democrats, Republicans. The reality is, you know, when we're fixing a pothole, building a building, a community center, funding things, there's no Democratic Republican way to do that. That's doing what's in the best interest of our communities. And so for me, that's been the most
4: gratifying.
0: All right. Well, we want to thank you both for joining us. Um, I think it's been a terrific conversation. We'd love to have you both back really soon to get updates on that and maybe just a path forward for other leaders in the state about how to get along. We really appreciate it. And still thank to come, soon. Mm-hmm, And still to come. newly acquired video from Fulton County is revealing key details from plea agreements already reached in the case against Donald Trump. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.
5: Hip-hop a product of black people.
0: Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. No media organization in Atlanta covers politics like the AJC. We produce this podcast and the Politically Georgia newsletter. And now we have a new Politically Georgia PM update newsletter. Make it your afternoon appointment to get caught up on what's going on. You can get it in your inbox for free every weekday afternoon. Just go to AJC.com slash Politically Georgia newsletter. That's all one word, AJC.com slash Politically Georgia newsletter. Now, newly acquired video from Fulton County is revealing key details from plea agreements already reached in the case against Donald Trump. ABC News and The Washington Post reported Monday that they'd reviewed video from all four defendants in the case who have agreed to testify in the case In one video, former Trump attorney Jenna Ellis recalls a conversation with Dan Scavino, who was Donald Trump's deputy chief of staff at the time in the White House, when she told Scavino the president was running out of legal options to challenge Joe Biden's victory. According to Ellis, Scavino said, well, we don't care. We're not going to leave, meaning he's not going to leave the White House. Here's that audio.
4: And he said, well, the boss, meaning President Trump, and everyone understood the boss. Um, That's what we all called him. Um, He said, the boss uh, is not going to leave under any circumstances. We are just going to stay in power. And I said to him, well, it doesn't quite work that way, you realize. And he said, we don't care.
0: Greg, this report from The Washington Post, as well as from ABC News, has just landed like a bomb this morning. And we've actually having a chance to hear some of those um, conversations between Jenna Ellis. We've also heard from Sidney Powell and prosecutors in Fulton County. I feel like we're getting a much better sense of what kind of information they will be offering um, against Donald Trump and some of the other defendants now.
2: Yeah, to me, I mean, hey, this is a gold mine. These were all videos, they're called proffers where uh, the the these these former defendants who have now taken a plea deal for lesser charges are t- discussing with prosecutors about why they're, you know, their their inside glimpses and o- really offering a guidepost to what they could be testifying about in the not so distant future. And so, hey, this reminds us of how great witnesses they could be for Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis and her team of prosecutors. Really, as you mentioned, it landed like a bombshell because we've seen this sort of reporting before. I mean, Maggie Haberman in her book uh, on on Donald Trump, you know, she she reported uh, that Trump was supposedly said to an aide, I'm just not going to leave. But now we hear it from Jen Ellis, who uh, was one of those top aides. I don't know if that's the aide that, that informed Maggie Haberman of that, but is one of those top aides who has firsthand knowledge of what was going on in the inner circles, the inner sanctum of the White House. Um, and so this is going to be basically this. This is why prosecutors went and took such lengths to try to strike a deal with Jenna Ellis for that, this sort of testimony right here.
0: And Bill, Kenneth Chesbro also um, revealed in his video that he had briefed President Trump directly on election challenges in Arizona, and he also summarized in a memo about his plan for alternate electors in key states, including in Georgia. So that's revealing to us that Donald Trump may have not been at arm's length from this entire process. You
1: are so right to point that, I think, because um, that's direct communication between Chesborough and Trump, whereas Jenna Ellis... Um, she may have other evidence in terms of what Trump specifically was told by her and others, but in what we've learned from this video, it's it's indirect. We don't know that there's a direct connection to Donald Trump. It's Scavino who told her they were gonna stay in power. I also thought (laughs) Sidney Powell's video was fascinating. Here, just a quote from what she said. I would have looked at putting into effect a provision Of A draft executive order is a summary of what she said that would have allowed the machines election machines to be secured in four or five states or cities and see about doing a bipartisan or military or whatever everybody agreed on review of the machines forensically. And we do know from other reporting that there was conversations in the Oval Office about whether the military should seize voting machines. Now, in that case, apparently former President Trump said I can't we can't go in that direction
0: yet Greg another thing that Sidney Powell said that that could actually accrue to the benefit of Donald Trump was that she sensed and she felt that Donald Trump's quote instincts told him that he had really won the election she said his he had an instinct and a feeling and of course he didn't have facts at the time or evidence and never did provide that evidence but did have the instinct that it was all a big fraud and it was being stolen from him. That was she felt like that's really, really what he believed. And that, at least that she sees, excuse me, at least that's what she's saying in her testimony to prosecutors.
2: Yeah. And this is sort of at the, the heart of this case, right, is whether or not there was criminal intent, whether or not Donald Trump knowingly still perpetuated this election fraud, uh, knowing that he lost the election or whether he truly believed all the spin, all the lies that he had won the election. And we can see from these videos, too, that he was still being surrounded by people who were telling him, hey, here's how you can uh, overturn this, your defeat. Um, We saw, as you mentioned, uh, you know, from the videos that Chesbro and others detailed their legal strategies to Donald Trump, even even potentially outline the fake elector plot, the alternate elector plot. Um, And Patricia, what was also so interesting about these videos was Sidney Powell was asked about a 20-minute conversation that she had with Marjorie Taylor Greene on the morning of January 6th, where she said she thinks that Marjorie Taylor Greene actually woke her up that morning. And they were talking about the the, the, the rally that ended up turning into the violent mob that stormed the Capitol. And Sidney Powell herself said she didn't think any of it was a good idea, uh, meaning Donald Trump's planned rally. So you get this inside glimpse about even people in Donald Trump's sort of inner circle having concerns about what was going on.
0: (laughs) It, it, it really is wild. I mean, we are I feel like we are really getting sort of a view into the inner sanctum. And you have to remember that Marjorie Taylor Greene had been a member of Congress for three days, yeah. <laughs> three days by then. And she is already calling the president's advisors to say you should do X, Y and Z. But of course, by then, she had already gotten very, very close to President Trump. Um uh, Bill, what is your takeaway from all of this? And we actually can go into more detail about yeah. what we've heard on these tapes. But it I can't I from my point of view, I don't know if we know if this um, necessarily strengthens the case against Trump specifically, but it certainly does implicate other members, yeah. somebody like Bob Ciele, his name came up in some of these conversations, as did Rudy, Gi- Rudy Giuliani. Giuliani.
1: Yeah, no, I think you make a really good point. We are still waiting for the direct evidence that Donald Trump directed, for instance, that Kenneth uh go ahead and trigger the plan to create an alternative slate of electors in battleground states. We don't know that whether that exists or not. Um, so... This is really fascinating, and as you say, I think people like Rudolph Giuliani, perhaps Mark Meadows are deep, deep jeopardy over all of this. It remains to be seen about Trump. Can I add one other quick thing though? Please. I loved the comments in his proffer of Scott Hall, the bail bondsman who was down in Coffee County where they opened up the machines illegally to uh, try to prove somehow that the Dominion machines were flipping votes. And I think Scott Hall kind of called himself, I think the term was, an election tourist. He just <laughs> went down there to kind of watch what was going on. He of course has now struck a plea deal uh, with uh, the tur- district attorney's office and see, will that be prosecuted? But I love this notion of just being, I was kind of a tourist uh, heading down to Coffee County.
0: Yeah, and it leaves you with the feeling that this was both, um, you know, this is an alleged serious assault on democracy. Yeah. But then also a view into uh, what somebody called last night the gang that can't steal straight. It's a little bit of a, <laughs> a <little laughs> three Stooges moment happening in some of these in some of these conversations. But other conversations are really really
1: serious. But we also learned from him that it, w- and I'm not sure. Maybe we knew this. I didn't. That Scott Hall may also have been involved in the effort to have others try to uh, influence Ruby Freeman and her daughter Shay Moss. Us to uh to acknowledge that they had tried to cheat in the fulton county elections
2: yeah bill this is why these rico charges are also interconnected because so many of the people the 19 original defendants who were charged have, have overlapping roles in this alleged scheme and this is also why this 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 trial is so complicated but as you mentioned uh, uh hall has uh, you know his has tendrils has potential uh evidence uh, against other defendants, including, by the way, as you mentioned, Bob Cheeley, who he described as the real brain trust behind everything else. So, you know, when we have these lower level defendants who very few people might have heard of before, um, before these indictments, and you want to know who's, who's this Hall guy? Who's Scott Hall? What role does he have? Well, this is part of funny. Well, it's a strategy. You go after the little guys to go get the bigger guys and people like Scott Hall can help deliver other defendants. We've already, maybe have seen um, in some of these other plea deals that came uh, since Scott Hall uh, pled guilty to lesser charges, that influence being uh, being felt.
0: Bill, um, for anybody who has watched Fannie Willis's career over the years, seeing the racketeering charges as a part of this process didn't come as a surprise to anybody because it's really been a hallmark strategy for her to build these concentric circles of defendants around. Almost a prized defendant, and th- in this case, it's certainly Donald Trump. And then just have the dominoes fall toward that person with additional layers of implicating information.
1: Absolutely. You you start with 19 defendants, and then you work up the ladder and get plea deals with people like Sidney Powell, like Kenneth Chesbro, uh, like Jenna Ellis, and you start building their the case for them to turn state's evidence against the bigger fish that you really want to uh, 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 punish to the most severe degree possible.
0: So, Greg, let's talk a little bit about the politics of this, because uh, we have seen in our AJC polling that Georgia voters continue to have doubts, particularly if they're Republicans, continue to have doubts about um, the security of the elections, their faith in elections. And um, they also uh, tell us that they um, are looking to see potentially additional fixes. And we don't know where all of this is going, but they are telling us that they feel like the charges in Fulton County may be politically related.
2: Yeah, look, in terms of election security and laws, we're seeing two different narratives come out of Republicans. Um there are some, you know, who are allied with Governor Kemp who say that SB 202, the big sweeping election bill that passed in 2021, uh with all the controversy and all the opposition from Democrats, is the is is should just be implemented focused on that that's the focus. And we're seeing particularly from the Republican controlled state senate an effort to go beyond those. Um, There was discussion earlier this year about banning ballot drop boxes and making it easier for voters to challenge uh, voter registrations um, and and to file these sort of mass challenges we're seeing. And I don't know if there's an appetite from the governor to to move in that direction this coming year. But as you mentioned, with the underlying, the polls we've seen, not just the AJC polls, but I would would even broaden out to other polls. um, We've seen a significant number of Republicans and just voters, our poll showed uh, a majority of voters overall showed that there. That many of them feel like these are serious charges. Uh, these are sorry. These are political charges being leveled against. There's some sort of politics behind these charges that funny Willis has brought against Donald Trump. But at the same time, Patricia, uh, a significant. Majority of Georgia voters and including uh, a big number of Republicans say they do not want to uh, that someone who is convicted of a felony by a jury should not be elected to federal office.
0: Now, Bill, this is all playing out while the presidential election is underway, and um, we are not seeing any damage. We are almost seeing strengthening of Donald Trump's presidential campaign while all, well, not just Fulton County, but New York, uh, the case in Washington, D.C. Um, he, he is gaining strength in some ways and using these as opportunities and almost press conferences when he's appearing in court. Um Do you think that as people start to see these videos of people who were so closely associated with the president really detailing what they saw and what they saw that they believed was wrong also, do you think that that will start to make a difference in in the minds of any voters?
1: We have no way, of course, of doing anything but speculating about that. My guess is if you take the Atlanta Journal-Constitution poll to heart, it will only be... Uh, if Trump is convicted in any of these cases, that he he could really lose support, certainly here in Georgia, uh, based on our poll. But it is interesting that, um, uh, that, that the former president's lawyers are now arguing they want the federal trial to be televised, which, of course, is not going to, to happen. And, of course, the prosecutors are arguing against it. But Trump does see this as yet another opportunity uh, to uh, play to his base. Fulton County case will be uh, most likely televised, and here he will get a chance to showboat to a certain extent. It, it, It can go either way. He can gain or he can lose, depending on how these trials play out, I think.
0: Greg, while you were covering the RNC debate in Miami, just a few miles up the road, Donald Trump was holding holding a rally in Hylia, Florida and talked about these prosecutions against him and said, I take it as a badge of honor to be prosecuted because they're not prosecuting me. They're prosecuting you and they're trying to silence me because they know I won't silence you. And those are the kind of lines that just light up his supporters. This was a huge stadium full of Trump supporters. And they just go they just are cheering louder than ever mm-hmm. when he talks about the cases against him.
2: Yeah, and at one time I described it as a blurred line between his legal case and his political campaign, and you corrected me. He said, there's no line. Uh, There there is no line. (laughs) And Patricia, I think the question coming up now is, you know, now there's a shrinking field of candidates. We we thought this consolidation would happen literally months ago. I thought it would happen after the first debate way back when, uh, and now we're at the third debate. Uh, But now that Mike Pence is out, now that Tim Scott is out, do we see any sort of coalescing, or is it too late? for any of those Trump alternatives to really gain any traction, whether it be Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis or Chris Christie.
0: I think that's a great question. Bill, what do you think?
1: Um, Well, it it does feel to me as if there are some opportunities for Nikki Haley, particularly in, in Iowa, moving forward, Um, We've already seen that there are some Tim Scott donors who have said they're going to shift their resources to Nikki Haley. So that's where we're really going to see whether there is a potential alternative. And is it Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis?
0: And, Greg, there was a data point in our poll, and I would say it might have only been the single data point in our poll that showed – a potential weakness for Donald Trump when it comes to these trials against him. And that was that 40% of, I believe it was Republican voters said they would mm-hmm. not vote for a candidate. And obviously Donald Trump is the candidate, although we didn't name him, but would not vote for a candidate who had been convicted convicted of a felony.
2: Yep. That is that is probably the one of the biggest weaknesses, the biggest vulnerabilities for Donald Trump, uh, who meanwhile has still has rock solid support among most likely Republican voters. So we'll see how it plays out pretty soon.
0: All right, well, we will continue to wait for the other shoe and the other shoe and the other shoe to drop. In this case, it's like an octopus in high heels these days. <laughs> well, that's all the time we have for today's podcast. You can now hear Politically Georgia live on 90.1 WABE in Atlanta weekdays at 10 a.m. Or look for Politically Georgia in your favorite podcast at sometime after one o'clock each day. If you like what you hear, leave us a review and share Politically Georgia with a friend. Come join us tomorrow at 10 a.m. on Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.